Inside of your packet, there is a sheet of paper that looks like this. It says radiate on the front. On the back, it says MPG. Uh, if you're from Mac, you know what this is all about. If you're from Liberty View, we, uh, we give out a sermon outline. Uh, with all of the scriptures, all of the main points that you can use and maybe make some notes on. You can use it as reference later on and uh, hope that that blesses you. On the back is MPG. And as you know, we talk about MPG all the time in the United States is miles per gallon. It's about how far you can get the car down the road. At MAC, in our church family, MPG stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. And it's taken the message, the sermon, the scriptures, that the text that we're going to be studying, and taking it further down the road. And so we are going to have a scripture for you to memorize. We have a, a prayer for you this week, and then some things for you to think about as you glorify God. Today we're going to begin a new series that we're going to call Building Blocks. As you know, uh, we're learners for life. We always are learning. There's never a day that goes by that we're not given the opportunity to, to know something new, to figure out something, to be given a new learning. And at the end of life, we're always learning. And in the educational process, we get to the Ph.D., but before that, it's the master's. And before you get to the master's, it's a bachelor's degree. And before that, it's high school. And before that, it's middle school or junior high, depending on what part of the country you're from. And before that, it's elementary. And before that, it's kindergarten. And before that, it's preschool. But learning begins in the nursery. Imagine those little blocks, those little two-inch square blocks that are colored. It is these little building blocks that we were given in our nursery where we began to learn the very first fundamentals, the very first foundational facts that bless us as learners throughout all, all of our life. With, with those blocks that we learn color, we learn our letters, and we learn our numbers. Now the same is true with our faith. When we are converted, when we are baptized, when we have repented, when we have confessed that Jesus is Lord, it is called a new what? Birth. It's, called an, it's not called a graduation. It's called a new birth. We are born into God's kingdom and we grow up into the likeness of the king. And there are building blocks that help us begin that journey in becoming disciples of Jesus. Now, if there is a theme statement we're going to have throughout this series, it's going to be this. You cannot attain maturity until you retain the elementary. You can't attain maturity until you retain the elementary. Now, we don't know who the writer of the Hebrew letter is, but he has given us these building blocks of our faith in the sixth chapter first two verses where he says let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God and instruction about baptisms the laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment now he has just given us the six building blocks that all people of faith must master if they are ever going to move on to maturity and to look like Jesus as his disciples. And those six are repentance, faith, baptism, laying on of hands. Now that one will be a surprise. Resurrection and judgment. Those are going to be the six lessons we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Now, I want to take you to someplace special. Today is Easter. 
Today is Easter, and it's a, it's a reminder that the world is different because of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to take you for just a couple of minutes to a very significant, special, moving place in the city of Jerusalem, in the country of Israel. You walk out of the old city of, of, of Jerusalem, and you go through that Damascus Gate, and it's not the old Damascus Gate. That one still exists, but it's down a little bit lower. But this is the gate that I believe that Jesus walked out of the north end of the city, carrying and bearing his cross. And as you walk out of that Damascus Gate, out of the, the old city, what you see is a, a kind of a park out in front of you. That park is known as the Garden Tomb Park. And you can go into that, and there's, uh, there's bookstores, and there's all kind of paraphernalia for you to buy. It's a tourist place, right? But it's built on a place, or that park is found on an old, old quarry from the time of Jesus. And as you go into that park, there's an amphitheater where you go and you get some instruction. And as you're sitting in that amphitheater, usually what the guide will do or the teacher will do, or if I'm doing some of the teaching, what we will do is talk about how this, this tomb in the garden park, garden tomb park, is probably not the tomb of Jesus. It's a, it goes all the way back to the Crusades in the 16th century, and there's a, it's old, 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 probably goes to the second century, but it is not the tomb, even though it's probably in the area. But as you're sitting there, you can look over to your right about 100 to 200 yards, and you see a place known as Gordon's Calvary. I think that is the place where Jesus of Nazareth was crucified for your sins and for mine. And it's in that place that you see on the side of that hill what looks like a skull. And you are sitting in the place where Jesus was crucified and somewhere near the place where he was buried. And it's not the place that, you would, you, that everybody says that it is, but it is in the, the vicinity where everything, including you, changed because of the resurrection of Jesus. And as you're sitting there, you can't help but think that Jesus was crucified... And he was put into a little cave like the one in that park for my sins. And when you see that ancient tomb and you see the stone rolled away, it hits you with full force that no tomb holds our Lord. Jesus' life, Jesus' mission, his influence, his story, and his impact on the world has not ended in a grave. And that means that my story and your story through faith in Jesus does not end in the grave. Our life right now is a life of victory over death. We live a victorious life. The resurrection means that life goes on and death does not. It means that the, the resurrection means that the vibrancy of life that we have as a gift of God will go on through eternity, but death dies. When you think about that cross, and then you think about that empty tomb, Jesus was not just one more crucified victim of Roman rule, but he is the resurrected master of the universe. Jesus said that the gates of hell could not prevail against his kingdom which means that his powerful resurrection life radiated out of the grip of death and hell. His powerful resurrection life radiated out from the tomb, and his powerful resurrected life radi radiates out through the entire universe. 
belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a building block of our faith. Paul will say it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection is false, if the resurrection is a lie, if the resurrection is a hoax, your faith is futile. means it is weak. It does not have power. It does not have influence. And it has no impact on your future because you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, the, out of all people, the most pitied. But then verse 20. But Christ indeed has been raised. The resurrection is the anchor point of the gospel. The last enemy, which is death, has been defeated. Living in light of the resurrection is living in victory throughout all of life. There is not a day, there is not a moment or circumstance. There is nothing that you face that is not ending in victory because of the resurrection. That, my brothers and sisters, is the message that this world desperately needs to hear. It was the message that Jesus is back from the grave and we saw it. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, you have the summary statement. Church is beginning. As you know, on Pentecost, there is the, the falling of the Spirit upon those disciples of Jesus, preaching, 3,000 being baptized. The church continues to grow. The Lord is adding to it daily. And by the time you get to, towards the end of Acts chapter 4, there is a summary statement of what the, the, the apostles and the disciples were preaching. And it reads like this. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There is a writer by the name of Peter Kreeft. He writes, and I quote, Why would the apostles lie? Why would the apostles lie? Liars always lie for selfish reasons. If they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. And Peter ends with these words, hardly a list of perks. End of quote. Amen. That is not the great perk list. So we need to understand the resurrection because this is the life-changing message of the gospel. Number one, the resurrection is a turning point. It goes all the way back to creation. In creation, we were originally created to be with God in the garden forever. Walking with God. The experience of love. There was no anxiety in the world. There was no death. There was no brokenheartedness. There was no despair, no disease. All of the things that kill human beings, they were absent in that original garden. We, through the one man, Adam, though, broke trust with God. We blackballed God. We gave God a vote of no confidence. We said to God, we know you, but we do not trust you. And sin entered the world at that point, and as sin entered into the world, sin began to break things and to break things down. First, with our relationship with God. As death enters the world, we're not going to live forever. Our relationship with God has been broken. 
Our relationship with others has been broken because of sin. Men and women. Are there ever problems between men and women? Are there problems between human beings? Cain kills Abel. And then a couple of chapters later, you have Lamech, who is, I mean, it starts off with just saying, you know, I'm going to eat this piece of fruit that is forbidden. And a couple of chapters later, there is murder spread throughout the, throughout the creation. And Lamech is bragging to his wives about a young man that he killed because he had injured him. And not only is it a brokenness with God and a brokenness with each other, but it's brokenness with creation. God says it's now thorns and thistles. He says that it's now the sweat of the brow that you're going to be able to bring forth your food. The world is broken. But then, some years later, we, have, we go from creation to incarnation. Jesus comes as both God and man. Man and God. He lives a sinless, perfect life. And everywhere that he goes, he is the example of what the kingdom of God is like in the flesh. And when the kingdom of God is present, it's about wholeness, and it's about miracles, and it's about human beings flourishing. And he tells people, you need to repent. And he's introducing the kingdom of God as the best offer that any human will ever receive in this life. And you know how the story ends? At the end of 33 years, he is nailed to a cross covered in his own blood. But it's that blood, it is that body that was sacrificed for us that makes forgiveness, that makes our, our hope of a relationship with God possible and real. And on the third day, incarnation goes to crucifixion. On the third day, the resurrection, Jesus dies. He goes through death. He doesn't bounce back, but he goes through death to the other side where death can no longer touch him. And Paul, in Romans, as he's writing to that church in Rome, says, we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He is called the first fruits. He is the first one. As you know, the Festival of First Fruits was about that first 10% with the promise of more harvest to come. We are those second fruits that come after the first fruits. And death no longer has mastery over him or us. We cannot die again. Paul says it this way to the church in Corinth. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead... Us comes also through a man. Enemies have been defeated and dark dominions have been overthrown. The resurrection means that God's kingdom has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. And people of faith in this present world are leaning into God's future. His kingdom is here. We are leaning into His future. We live transformed lives. And the things that matter to God are the things that matter to all of us who are His disciples, who call upon His name as our Savior and as our Lord. But it doesn't end there. We go from creation to incarnation to crucifixion to resurrection to consummation. The renewal of all things. In Matthew 19, Jesus Himself said, Truly I tell you at the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And anyone who has left houses 
or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and inherit eternal life. When we die, our spirit goes to God. This is life after death. Our bodies decompose and turn to dust. But one day, Jesus will return. Jesus will return to be with Him, and then we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We will receive our resurrection bodies. It will be you, but only more so. It will be you, but in the way you were meant to be. And it will be God and God's people together forever and ever and ever. Amen. Not a whiff of death. Not a scent of sin. Not a trace of evil. Can you imagine a world where there is no disease? No disappointments. There's no broken hearts. And there's no brokenness. Which leads to the second point, which is the resurrection heals all of our brokenness. The resurrection means our brokenness is healed. You know, human beings, and we see evidence of this every day, are chained to a broken life. Humans are enslaved to sin, and the signs are all over the place. How we give ourselves to pleasure, or to power, or to popularity. We will do anything to be popular, or to get prestige, or the, the politics, the, the power of politics. It's not working out for humans as promised. I mean, the evidence of that is all over the place. The advertising is false. But the promise and the hope of the resurrection points to a life in a world where that will all disappear. No brokenness. There's no despair, no disappointments. And it begins now. The reality of the resurrection comes into all of our lives as a power. This is one of the things that Paul is praying for. He wrote down that prayer for us, a prayer to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. And he says in chapter 1, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, he writes, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is active in your life right now. That is how your brokenness is healed. That is how you change and bear the fruit of the Spirit. That is how change comes to your life. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Last point. The resurrection makes joy real. The cross represents the reality of this world. Ellen and I last night watched Mel Gibson's. It's kind of a tradition, the Saturday night before Resurrection Sunday, to watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And when you see the way, you see you have this visual of the way that human beings 
could not only treat another human being, but the best human being who ever lived, the one who brought healing, the one that fed, the one that gave sight to the blind, the one that raised widows' children and, and grieving parents from the dead. We were able to beat him into a pulp and beat him into the ground. We bled him out. We nailed him to a cross. And we beat him down until he gave up his spirit. It is accomplished. The disappointments and the brokenheartedness of this world, we are able to magnify that greatly. Putting an innocent, righteous, loving man who made the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers clean, fed the hungry, healed the sick, who is also our creator, is a clear sign of what human beings are capable of doing. But that was Friday. On Sunday, 2,000 years ago, the angel said to the woman who had gone to the tomb to see the body, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. He is not in this tomb. He is resurrected. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. Every day is different. Every day is different because of the resurrection. Our, our brokenness has been healed. We look forward to a future that is beyond any accurate description and the, the, the majestic beauty of it. The only brokenheartedness that we will have in that world is the brokenheartedness that comes from a heart that just cannot handle the joy or hold any more joy than it can. That is the promise of the resurrection. That is the message that our city needs to hear. Elizabeth Rooney wrote a poem and the end of it goes, For Easter love has burst his tomb in ours. Now nothing shelters us from God's desire. Not flesh, not sky, not stars, not even sin, so that he can enter in. And now the dance begins. What does the resurrection tell you about God? What does the resurrection tell you about God? That God is for you. I mean, we talk all the time, and in fact, sometimes we dismiss people because we anticipate ahead of time, maybe don't listen as, clear as clearly as we should. We know that they have an agenda. What does the resurrection tell you about the agenda of God? The agenda of God is life. The agenda of God through the resurrection is your healing and your wholeness and your flourishing and your thriving. It is about God putting His glory in you. It is about God putting His Spirit in you so that you grow up to look like His Son, Jesus. That is God's agenda. It is healing and conquering of death and forgiveness and the restoration of, of, of people and the reconciliation of creation and creatures to their Creator. That is God's agenda with the resurrection. Let's stand and sing.